Payments Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Payments technology has sped past what would be considered a normal growth curve and has given businesses more efficient options to manage their accounting and other functions. But guess what? Fraudsters are even faster than technology. Security technology has also accelerated to meet payments innovation, especially as the business world continues to stay with a hybrid working model. But as fast as innovation can move, fraudsters are faster. These dynamics are moving B2B payments and security beyond simple technology. They're necessitating an entire new mindset for considering payments and security partners, as well as executing on the strategies it takes to move forward. What is that new mindset? Well, hi, I'm John Gaffney. I'll be hosting today's payments podcast titled Developing a New Payments and Security Mindset. I am joined by Chris Gerda, Risk and Fraud Prevention Manager for Bottom Line, as well as his colleague Jessica Cheney, Vice President of Product Management and Strategic Solutions at Bottom Line. We'll discuss this emerging mindset as it applies to new developments in fraud prevention, customer relationships, and new payment platforms. Now, Chris, we'd like to start with you. Welcome. Thanks, John. You know, we recently wrapped the National Automated Clearinghouse Association event, better known as NACHA. Um, Security was certainly high on the agenda. Your session at the show focused on developing a holistic view of payments and security. Now, in the wake of that show, what are some of the things you think will define the future of security and fraud fraud prevention? I think there's quite a few things. one that comes to mind, I think it resonated at NACHA and a lot of different presentations, even the keynotes, um, is that security is becoming more personal. When we think about you know, what does that actually mean, um, I think you look at the T-Mobile breach that happened in the last two weeks, where we have cell phones across the country, their numbers, names of the people, social security numbers, but then the PIN numbers that actually go to secure those cell phones, those SIM cards within them. That's a really personal type of attack. And as we saw last year, businesses and COVID and work from home, our personal lives collided with our business lives. And I think we're going to see a lot more personal uh, security needed to secure everything within our lives, not not just things at home, but also our businesses from our emails, our personal emails and personal cell phones that we may duly use for business purposes. And then also the communication that we have on a personal level with a customer, that social engineering angle that fraudsters use to identify those weeks, weak links. You know, it's all very personal levels. And you, you could see almost like in the past two to three years, regulatory guidance, news from banks, the way they're interacting, it's not just banks that are responsible for stopping fraud. Now the corporates are much more involved in stopping fraud. And then it's not just the corporates that are involved, come becoming involved. It's the employees individually that are becoming more keen, more open, more knowledgeable about it because it's impacting their personal lives. Like we're getting emails to our personal email addresses about clicking on bad links for COVID. And now we're all starting to kind of come together to be stronger. And really, it's not just passing it or rolling it downhill to all the way down to the employee from the bank through the corporate, but it's really what what are we doing now as a, as a group to 
invest in becoming more secure. And very particularly, I think digital identity solutions that are securing communications, new payment innovations that are designed to be more secure are really like first and foremost. So I think if there's one resonating overall factor, it's security is becoming more personal and to be able to get better at it, it's embracing the digital, embracing, embracing that innovation. And, and Chris, also um, uh, from one of the things I took away from your um, from your panel was the importance of being proactive rather than reactive um, in these situations. Yeah, I think that's a being forward thinking, being proactive is having time in your day to be thoughtful about slowing down a payment, looking more critically at an email, something like that is being very proactive, but also part of every accounts payables person's job today is always it, it is kind of it's morphing. So a big piece of your job is actually being part of innovation projects, digitization, implementations with providers, reviewing and exploring new providers to improve efficiencies and security. That's the proactivity, but also on a human level, that security becoming more personal. It's communicating with your vendors proactively. We will never do this, or we will never ask you for this. And the way that we want you to communicate with us is through a secure portal. Maybe it's the real-time payment messaging, or maybe it's a platform like PayModex to submit invoices. So they take that email that's becoming so breached and such a target from fraudsters out of that equation, and they get down to a more personal level where they can trust one another so that it stays proactive and not reactive. You're, you're reacting when you're doing reconciliation to detect fraud. You're reacting if you're doing a last second payment monitoring after a payment's left the door and then you get an alert, right? That's a reactive type of monitoring way further downstream than you actually want it in your, in your game plan. Being proactive is you know, taking things to a personal level and that's securing communication, which ultimately, you know, one of the things I talked about was securing not just payments, but securing relationships. And relationships are personal. So if you think about it holistically, how am I securing that relationship from how I talk to a vendor, from the payment to the invoice to the type of payment that I send them? you can really break it down and remove those social engineering angles that a fraudster is trying to take advantage of. Excellent, Chris, thank you. And a great segue to Jessica Cheney. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. We, we, uh, the, the Nacha event also put real-time payments at the top of its agenda. I know that's a, a topic near and dear to your heart. Now, there seems to be a mindset that real-time payments aren't as secure as other payment methods. And I know that you don't agree with that, but um, why is there this myth about securing real-time payments? Well, definitely, I don't agree with that. Um, you know, the desire to speed up the transfer of value uh, has never been and never should be in conflict with making those payments secure. Uh, nobody wants to be responsible for making a fraudulent uh, transaction faster. So as Chris and I talked about, those security basics, and Chris just mentioned you know, proactive security basics, are even more essential when you deal with real-time payments. Chris also just reiterated that concept of focusing on relationships versus transactions. And that concept is 
extremely important and facilitated by real-time payments in a couple of different ways. One, dealing with the relationship with your customers. Um, authentication protocols are essential for real-time payments. You need to review and update these often. They are the keys to the front door. So this first step is the first step in defending yourself against the fraudulent payment being made. You need to make sure you know you're dealing with your legitimate customer, and these legitimate customers have previously been entitled to create a real-time payment. Um, real-time payments can still be uh, scanned for uh, watch list items. They can be subjected to transaction limits, to behavioral analytics, to multi-factor authentication or one-time passcodes. Um, you know, all of those things are the things that Chris was talking about in terms of being proactive instead of reactive after um, something, a problem has occurred. The required speed of these transactions only come into play after all of those security measures have and, and hurdles have been cleared. Um, secondly, you know, probably more towards the point of Chris's focusing on relationships versus transactions it is the area where real-time payments facilitate um, interacting in a different way with a, a company's customers, their suppliers, or their training partners. The TCH real-time payment scheme really uh, took this to a different level when it introduced within its message sets and workflows the ability for a receiver of a payment or the receiver of a request for payment to ask the sender of those items a question. They refer to this as request for information, but it is the ability um, and provides a mechanism for a two-way communication in that secure channel because it's in the same rail that the funds actually um, traverse as well that can be used to validate those relationships between the parties. Now, this replaces the old-fashioned way of communicating um, out of channel via phone calls or emails. It avoids the opportunity for business email account compromise. The transactions occur on the real-time payment network and are conducted through uh, an authenticated session on the bank's online treasury management solution. So in addition to that, those transactions are then recorded audited and available for either party in the future. So um, clarifications such as uh, details on amounts or invoice numbers or the purpose of payment can all be conveyed in that way. But those are pieces of data that only parties that had a previous relationship would know and can be used to actually validate that relationship. So uh, definitely real-time payments are as secure, if not potentially even more secure than some other types of payments. Definitely more secure than writing a check and putting that check in the mail. Well said. Jessica, let's stay with you here because one of the things you mentioned during the NACHA discussion centered around a concept called conversational payments. Could you unpack that a little bit? Sure. That's exactly what I was actually uh, just describing. We just have started to refer to it as conversational payments because within that supported message set and workflows is that ability uh, for two parties to that are part of the exchange of value to actually communicate with each other as part of that payment network. 
you know, I, uh, a couple of other things I'll highlight here. Receivers of payments have the ability to send something that's optional called a payment acknowledgement. It's an electronic confirmation that they've received someone's payment. And if desired, it, it has the ability to carry text that can act as a, a thank you note. Now, I mentioned previously the request for information message uh, where the receiver of a payment or a request for payment has the ability to ask a question of the sender. Um, that mechanism, again, in a secure channel, um, it can be used to validate the relationship between the parties. They can replace the multiple phone calls or emails that many accounts payable or accounts payables clerks placed. By the way, have you ever seen one of those people's desks? They have sticky notes everywhere or notes written on paper invoices that get filed away somewhere. But in these real-time electronic communications, these interactions are attached to the payment record or attached to the request for payment itself and can easily be retrieved in the future if there are questions. So this user, the user experience that's associated with these and why we call them conversational payments is very chat-like or text-like. So the exchanges are very easy to accommodate, but they have that added value of constantly or, or in perpetuity being attached to the payment record. So they can easily be recalled for any audit purpose or just for clarification purposes in the future. Okay, thank you. No more post-it notes. Okay. So Chris, one of the things I keep reading about is this urgency around fraud prevention, which is certainly understandable, um, and, and all the solutions out there to address it. But I'd have to believe for a company that's integrating this, it's not that simple. So how would you counsel a bank or a corporate to navigate these decisions and find their way toward picking the right partner? That's a great question. So definitely two different conversations on counseling a bank versus a corporate um, when I'm talking about the corporate perspective, um, you know, Jessica just mentioned thinking about the receiving a payment. If you receive a payment, you can give an acknowledgement back to that payer that you received a payment. And that is an assurance to that payer, which, you know, really eases their anxiety. And that's really a relationship. That's that security is becoming more personal. Now think about what if you put a rule around that? What if the rule said, every time I've sent this vendor a payment, they've always gave me an assurance back. And then 50 times later, they didn't send me an assurance back. And the system sees that there was a recent bank change. Man, that's like a red flag right there. So now you're going to look at your process. Did I update that banking information correctly? Did I, let me call my vendor. Let me, where's my post-it note real quick with their phone number? Mm. Oh, right. It's on the past invoice. I don't even look, need to look for it. So I'm going to call them on a verified line and I'm going to make that, that, I'm going to make that relationship question connection. And if it turns out to be okay, that relationship is going to be a lot stronger because they could see how much you valued that money getting to them securely. And that is the definition of innovation in payments. It's so when you're either thinking about from a corporate level or a bank level, you know, how do you evaluate a partnership? The first, one of the first things that you want to ask a partner is about their security and their security innovation. So it's often been like a taboo, right? A backend process. So what's, what's your security in, in this solution? And that, that's almost happening after the sales cycle is nearly complete. 
evaluating it. So for banks, bring your compliance and your fraud experts into the conversation about payments innovation. For corporates, make it part of an a job role, a description to have the time to put into evaluating and asking those questions of partners and understand that you're faced with a lot of decisions, right? I've got all these different rails being created for different types of payments. You have clearinghouse real-time payments, you have FedNow, you have some coin stuff being talked about and what's going on. One thing to really recognize is that for these ecosystems, these payment ecosystems to work, they actually have to be connected. So one of the uh, an analogy maybe would be like, so I like roller coasters and I'm often going, okay, I'm getting into the park. Which one do I get in line for? Right. I may not have time for both because the lines are like two and a half hours. So which one am I going to pick? So I pick one and it's a hard decision. And then I regret it halfway through the line that I might not get to ride the other one. But when you think about it from a, am I picking the right real-time payment solution, clearinghouse, Fed, what? What the heck is the difference? What am I doing? Understand that you're not picking the wrong one. They're both in the same amusement park. They have to play together to work efficiently. There, there's not an exclusivity between one and the other. They're going to connect those rails because they're creating an ecosystem for all payments. If we did not do that, we would not be secure. We'd have a silo over here and a silo over here. And one of the tenets of security is to de-silo that so that you can be more secure together, right? To have those assurances, to have rules that function in one ecosystem. So that's really important to recognize that the decisions you make are important to one, ask the security questions. It's not taboo. Dig in five times re-ask the same question twice, make sure you're getting the same answer. And two, understand when selecting payment innovations that those ecosystems are probably connected. And when you're evaluating a partner, you should be looking at, are they innovative? Are they making something new with this data? And are they going to be able to scale with my program? Are they actually doing something interesting? So that's probably some just advice all around. Mm, great advice. Thank you so much. Um, Jessica, let's go back to you and, and, and back to the payment side of the ledger um, and, and talk about communications again. I, you know, I know that real-time payments has the ISO 222 standard attached to it. Um, you've talked about some of the data and some of the messaging that can turn a transaction into a communication, but why is it so important for banks to embrace this standard in particular? Great question. Uh, first and foremost, the selection of a standard was critical in doing this. Um, the fact that the standard that was selected is ISO 2022 um, is also important as part of this. A lot, uh, we talk about communication and message sets. Every payment system in the world has some type of system to system communication message set built into it, but the ISO message set, I, bridges not only the needed system-to-system communication, but expands that to that personal communication that Chris was talking about earlier. It actually has within it, you know, message standards that address how humans interact with each other versus how systems interact with each other. And that, that landing on that standard that allowed people to do that was important having a standard 
that sets expectations uh, for all parties in the transaction flow, the sending and receiving financial institutions, their technology providers, the scheme operators, having uh, a way that we all know what our role is, what we what is expected, what's accepted, uh, and how those interactions can be uh, supported is important. That's why this is actually uh, being able to be that interconnected ecosystem that Chris talked about previously. Being able to have that standard allows for interoperability because other schemes know how to interact. Um, the message that is also flexible enough um, to enhance that communication, um, but in such a way that it's easy to adopt and implement as well. Um, you're not learning. It, it, this will give my age away a little bit, but EDI was a great message set, but it was like learning a different language. Um, ISO 20022 is much easier to understand from a layman's perspective it's easier to, to actually apply business concepts to. Um, and so I think that's really why it was important for us to, as an industry, land on a message set and a standard like ISO 20022. And, while, and why it's taken a little while to, to gain the traction that it has, but it is now you know, the de facto payment standard worldwide, whether we're talking about real-time payments or otherwise. Interesting. You know, we're talking mindsets here, and you mentioned interoperability, which is a big word and a buzzword, relates to so many things in the payments and commerce world. How does it relate to real-time payments, Jessica, and some of the decisions that Chris described earlier? Um, interoperability, along with standardization, was one of the two key tenets that, um, at least in the U.S., we, the, the market set out to tackle as lessons learned from why previous attempts at payment, changing the payments industry hadn't been successful. I sat on the Federal Reserve's Faster Payments Task Force um, while we created those guidelines for what we wanted to see in the next um, innovation in payments in the U.S. Interoperability was one, it, I can't tell you how many times that came up. Um, and I think that's the key because it, again, we went into designing this new change. And I say we, that's, you know, capital W, we as an industry, went into uh, putting this ecosystem together, knowing that interoperability wasn't just a buzzword. It was the key to success. Uh, and that's really manifested itself in the way that the clearinghouse has brought out the RTP network in the way that the Fed is designing FedNow, in the way that other um, commercial entities that are really part of this ecosystem, like Early Warning and Zelle and MasterCard Send and Visa Direct, all of those uh, ancillary services that have grown up around the concept of real-time payments have really embraced interoperability. And it's not just a buzzword. You see that Zelle is now clearing transactions via the clearinghouse. They, the clearinghouse and the Fed have had conversations to make sure that their adoption and implementation of the ISO message set is interoperable 
and, and not just something that we've talked about. Excellent. Thank you, Jessica. Chris, we're going to come back to you to wrap this conversation. You said at the beginning that when you're talking about the future, we need to be proactive rather than reactive. And um, in your NACHA presentation, you discussed future-proofing fraud prevention. If you had to pick three steps companies can take to future-proof their systems, what would they be? Yeah, um, yeah, I could pick 10, but I'll, I'll try. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll limit it to three. Okay, come to five. <laughs> so take it back to basics, right? Make sure you, you educate on business email account compromise fraud identification and and understand that thoroughly understand that you can never re rely on documentation you must rely on digitization that brings me to like number two right to to be in the digital identity world to stop these types of scams you have to have the mindset toward innovation and that requires trust and evaluation of providers and that's going to lead you to efficiency and security coming together. And that is actually uh, a concept that generally sometimes doesn't liken one-to-one, -one, right? Usually, if you have too much security, your efficiency goes down. If you have too much efficiency, your security goes you know, down. So in the case of the correct way to do innovation, particularly real-time payments, ACH networks like the PayModex authenticated network, we combine efficiency and security into one package. And we do that effectively by adding the digital identity pieces for BEC fraud identification. And that is critical, um, those two pieces. And then when we get to number three, number three will never change. Um, it is to have some sort of centralized incident or suspicious activity reporting in all of your payables processes, whether that's one email distribution list where anyone has a big red button to slow payment down, to get a second set of eyes, and that's a cultural shift for some organizations. It puts pressure on them to get payment discounts, get something out the door. If we always have that ability to be heard when there is an incident and have people that can make decisions, cut through red tape, and make sure that security is the number one thing that is checked off before we send a payment, then we should do that. And that's simply centralized reporting so that you can get someone to assist you if you feel socially engineered or pressured or you get that weird email. That's critical for every organization to have, particularly corporates, governments, uh, and banks already have those types of things in place. But uh, put those down on your to-do list. So, Chris, you did a great job getting from 10 to 3. That was, that was fantastic. Yeah. I know that's hard. I know that must be hard for you in your job, but very well said. Thank you to you and Jessica for sharing your thoughts with me and our listeners. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But in the meantime, you can listen to more episodes focusing on all things payment related or pop over to bottomline.com and we'll see you all next time. Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.